L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This woman says that she was abducted by beings from another planet and taken on board their spaceship where she experienced a bizarre, unforgettable journey in time and space. Now, what makes her story credible is the work that a team of UFO researchers headed by this man did to document the incident. Now, the results of their findings are reported in this fascinating book, The Andreasen Affair. Would you please welcome Betty Andreasen and Raymond E. Fowler. Good afternoon. Betty? Yes, sir. Could you briefly tell us what happened? I was taken out into the backyard, and I was taken aboard the aircraft, and I was given uh, extensive examination. Brought to a strange place, and then returned home. She maintained consciousness through all this experience. Yes, I did. Betty and Barney Hill's experience was the first story of alien abduction to become widely known. And as the first, it established the elements that subsequent abduction tales would contain. People such as Betty Andreasen would take these elements and expand on them, creating even more incredible narratives. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 8, Missing Time. Each stage of Betty and Barney Hill's September 1961 UFO encounter seems to have a prosaic explanation. But they arrived home around five in the morning, not two, as they'd expected. What happened during those missing hours? The original estimate of 2 a.m. came from a stop they made at a restaurant in Colebrook, New Hampshire. As they left, they noticed that a clock on the wall read just after 10 p.m., They thought the rest of the trip should have taken between four and five hours. Last episode, author Jim McDonald described driving the hill's route, comparing where in the sky he saw the light on top of Cannon Mountain to the description of the UFO's movements in John Fuller's book, A Journey Interrupted. He believes that they were running later than they thought, even before they entered Franconia Notch. Author... Jim McDonald. Now we know they left Colbrook around 10 p.m. And Fuller says that they are at Twin Mountain approaching Franconia Notch at 11. This is just impossible. It cannot be done. At 11 p.m., they're only just a little bit south of Lancaster, still north of Whitefield. One of the pieces of evidence is that their watches had stopped when they were home the next day. Especially in the early 60s, with the wind-up watches, it was easy enough to break a spring, to jam those things. Watches were delicate. We have no idea 
when their watches stopped working, but based on that information, I would say their watches had already stopped at some time before they got to Franconia Notch. Before the sighting even began, they were confused about the time. It's 62 miles on dark, winding rural roads from Colebrook to Franconia Notch. Today, Google Maps predicts an hour and 24 minutes for daytime driving. At night, in 1961, it would have taken longer. As far as how much time they spent, remember they were stopping repeatedly to walk the dog, to look at their strange light in the sky. They deliberately drove slowly for a portion of the trip. They got lost up a side road, and they spent some time driving around downtown Concord looking for an open coffee shop. How many times did they stop? At least a half a dozen. It's easy to lose two hours doing that. A few months back, I was down in Lineborough, New Hampshire, driving around on a road that was very much like what US-3 would have been like in the 1960s. 3 has been expanded and straightened and flattened quite a bit since then, but even so, there I was driving along, and I thought I was driving 50, 55. I looked down at my speedometer, I was doing 30. My thought is that Betty and Barney, when they estimated they were doing 50 to 55, no, they were doing like 25 to 30. Also, we know from Fuller's book, they crossed over from Canada at around 9 and got to Colebrook around 10. It's 10 miles from the border crossing to Colebrook. They weren't driving any 55 miles an hour. They were driving closer to 20, which, given what the road looked like then, very reasonable. UFO investigator Robert Schaefer. They talk about driving so slowly. You know, at one point, Barney said later that he was only driving along at five miles an hour looking at this thing. Well, if you're driving along at five miles an hour, you know, at first gear, you're going to get home late. Suddenly, the missing hours have become more understandable. Their watches stopped working, so their timing was off before the encounter began. They drove very slowly for portions of the trip. They stopped on several occasions for various lengths of time. They took a detour through Concord. Add in that they had been on the road for so long and must have been fatigued and possibly not driving as fast as they thought they were. The missing time seems to have eroded away. And with this explained, there's nothing left except for a strange story compellingly told. There's no evidence you can point to and say, see, here's the proof. This is not to say that Betty and Barney Hill were lying or deceptive. No one I talked to believes this. They were in a confusing, stressful situation and misinterpreted what they saw. They later underwent hypnosis and told a story based on Betty's dreams that we know can't be taken literally. Tragically, Barney died in 1969 at age 46 of a cerebral hemorrhage. In the years that followed, Betty became a celebrity in the UFO world, but her credibility suffered. After Barney's death, Betty's claims about her interactions with UFOs and aliens became more and more outlandish. She kept a journal titled Strange Events. In it, she typed out things that supposedly had either happened to her or that she had heard about. Here's an example, taken more or less at random, from February 5th, 
1983. On 108, as I was going down the hill, I saw a UFO behind the trees over the trailer. As I came closer, it moved from behind the trees, crossed the trailer yard, and headed towards me. It began to descend. Here, the road is higher than the field. It was very close and large and level with the road, about 20 to 25 feet across. Large, bright white lights and a small red one. Two cars came and it turned away from me towards the field, moving slowly. I immediately parked to watch it. It had three lights on the back. And I began to panic. It was less than 50 feet from me, and I thought it was going to crash. I heard a faint humming sound. Then it traveled just above the ground and went towards the ocean. I headed for home. At the 101 bypass in Exeter, it suddenly reappeared, stopped the other side of the traffic light. I did not see it before I went through the light. Suddenly, this UFO dropped down close to the road. I stopped my car. All cars screeched to a halt and sat there. The UFO rose and began to move across the highway and disappeared, traveling from the left to the right. Skeptoid host Brian Dunning. She was a lifelong UFO obsessive to a point that was practically a psychological illness. In the letter to a friend, she wrote, Barney and I go out frequently at night for one reason or another. Since last October, we have seen our friends, in quotes, on the average of eight or nine times out of every ten trips. She would believe that she saw UFOs everywhere she went. She was part of UFO groups, and other people in the groups kind of, I don't want to say laughed at or mocked her, but they knew her to be someone who saw a UFO in everything she looked at. Here's a story where they were looking at a street light and she was saying, no, it's a UFO standing on a tripod. Betty took strange out-of-focus photos of what she claimed were flying saucers. Here she is showing slides of her photos at a UFO conference in 1987. The images she presents are blurred and impossible to identify. This is a carrier. The bottom opens up, and the discs drop down. Next. There they are. And here we have the same flight pattern, same position as we had before with the seven flying in V formation. Here there's um, eight of them. Next. Okay, here we have a disc and a boomerang. Next. This one is absolutely huge. It filled up the whole field, and I went back with my car and drove along the edge of the field, and it's over a quarter of a mile. And this one was tremendous roaring sound. It sounded like 10 jets, and that's only part of it. I don't have it all on the slide, but they had red lights at the very ends. Next. Betty, back up to the previous question about communication. You have had communication in the form of uh, blinking your headlights at them. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, that is, that's a indirect communication. Um, you know, they, as I was saying, they don't leave the craft. They don't speak. But, like, we've done things like go out there and play Christmas carols. 
and then have a UFO fly over playing back the same Christmas carols. This story is an example of how she undermined her own credibility with tales that seem clearly fanciful. It is important, though, to remember that this is almost 25 years after her hypnosis sessions. Again, Robert Schaefer. Betty actually wrote a self-published book, I think 1995, and it was called Common Sense About UFOs by Betty Hill. If you read that book, it's utterly amazing. She'd be standing like near the mouth of a river and she would see entire fleets of hundreds of UFOs would come in off the ocean and would fly up the river. I suspect she was seeing some birds and in her imagination, the birds were UFOs or maybe she just made the whole thing up. In Kathleen Martin's book, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience, Kathleen acknowledges the credibility problem caused by Betty's later years. Betty's fall from grace ultimately transpired because she surrounded herself with UFO enthusiasts who looked to her for guidance. Many were not trained observers or UFO investigators, but friends who supported her belief that they were observing extraterrestrial craft, even when they were misidentifying conventional aircraft. Some of their descriptions seemed to support the conjecture that at least a few of their observations were anomalous. Additionally, some of these observations were made by trained military observers and UFO investigators who confirmed that they had observed unconventional craft. Betty publicized this information because she thought she was contributing valuable information to the scientific community. What we must remember, though, is Betty was not a scientist or a trained observer. After Barney's death, she turned away from careful, objective evaluation and with subjective enthusiasm began to identify any lights in the sky as UFOs. In the end, it destroyed her credibility, not because she didn't observe or photograph UFOs, but because she failed to heed John Fuller's warnings. Fuller, the author of An Interrupted Journey, wrote letters to Betty warning that she would undermine her credibility if she promoted questionable sightings. Betty's fantastical claims later in life are not proof that she misidentified what she saw in 1961. But in my mind, they reflect a kind of openness to drawing incredible conclusions based on fairly ordinary circumstances. Remember, she pegged a light in the sky as a UFO pretty much right away. Regardless of what actually happened that September night, the Hill story had a cultural impact that resonates today. UFO researcher Alejandro Rojas. It was the first kind of, in the media, alleged alien abduction experience. The whole idea about these beings from Zeta Reticuli coming here comes from this. So for the mythos of it all, it's been very significant. And it's not just the concept of alien abduction that began with the Hills. Their story of their time aboard the craft became the template for subsequent alien abduction stories. It was a template that prevailed very much from 1966 to really right up until the 1980s. The Hill story provided the basic framework for future alien abduction stories. But it wouldn't be enough to tell a variation of their narrative. The new stories would have to be more incredible after the break. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. 
L-A-S-I-K-LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. A Journey Interrupted was published in 1966. Just months later, in January of 1967, another abduction allegedly occurred. This was the abduction of Betty Andreasen, who was taken from her home in Ashburnham, Massachusetts. Her story was told in the 1979 book The Andreasen Affair by Raymond Fowler, a former colleague of John Fuller's. Betty Andreasen was a fundamentalist Christian who uh, was taken aboard a flying saucer by two very friendly aliens. The names of the two aliens, as I recall, were Krasga and Jewhop. This is author Terry Matheson. I'm a retired English professor, taught at the University of Saskatchewan for many years, and um, I wrote a book back in the 90s called Alien Abductions, creating a modern phenomenon where I analyzed a number of books about the alien abduction phenomenon. They were all bestsellers, or most of them were, sold very well, and reached a wide swath of the public. And I was interested in how the narrative developed. The Betty Andreasen story showed how the Hill narrative could be used and expanded upon. Betty Andreasen was a homemaker with seven children who was allegedly taken from her home on a night when her husband was in the hospital and her parents were visiting. Here, author Raymond Fowler describes the beginning of the encounter during a 1979 radio interview. How about explaining to the listeners, and to me too for that matter, what exactly happened to Betty and Becky Andreasen on January 25th of 67? Okay, on that particular evening, about 6.35 p.m., uh, there was an intermittent power failure. Simultaneous with that, there was a flashing orange light which came uh, through the kitchen window, which overlooks a huge field. Uh, the children were scared. Uh, Mrs. Andreasen shooed her seven children into the living room. Her father ran to the kitchen window and looked out and claimed he saw what looked like children dressed in strange Halloween costumes. Uh, On second look, though, he saw that they weren't walking, but they were moving, floating with a hopping motion. All he can remember after that is them somehow getting in the house. They did enter the house. Mrs. Andreasen communicated with them uh, through mental telepathy. Other members of the family seemed to have just frozen in motion, for want of a better term. We called it it suspended animation. 
Mrs. Andreasen was very concerned about her family and they allowed Becky Andreasen, she was 11 years old at the time, to come out of this state of suspended animation uh, to assure Mrs. Andreasen that she was all right. Uh, and then, uh, to make a long story short, they convinced Betty Andreasen to follow uh, them to a craft which was out in the backyard. She felt that she had free will, but in looking back, hindsight felt that they had complete control over everything that she did. So you can see where there are some of the elements of the Hill story, the abduction, the control the aliens have over her, but she has already added elements, the suspended animation, and the aliens themselves, two of whom, as Terry Matheson mentioned earlier, were named Quasga and Juhop. Betty Andreasen was a bit of an artist. She drew pictures of Quasga and Juhop, and they were sort of cute little beings. You can find the images that she drew on the internet. They are of whimsical creatures, not the strange, ambiguous, though ultimately friendly, aliens described by Betty Hill. In another parallel with the Hill case, Betty Andreasen's experience on the alien spacecraft was recovered through regression hypnosis years after the fact. Her sessions were conducted by Harold Edelstein, who at the time was the director of the New England Institute of Hypnosis. Her story begins with obvious similarities to Betty Hill's. Again, Raymond Fowler. The craft was very small. Uh, They stayed in that craft for uh, a fairly long time. She felt heaviness and so forth, and then it stopped, and she felt that she was taken aboard a larger craft where she was subjected to the effects of a number of very, very strange instruments. Fowler had brought portions of Andreasen's hypnosis session tapes with him to this radio interview. If you would, give us background so we can lead up to what I understand is going to be a pretty startling piece of audio tape that we're going to be listening to. All right. The audio tape that you're going to be hearing excerpts from comes from uh, one of 14 hypnotic regression sessions, and uh, it concerns Betty Andreasen, who allegedly was abducted by UFO occupants and given, among many other things, a physical examination. What you're about to hear is a small segment of that physical examination. And I think that you will be able to relive with her the trauma and the pain uh, and the emotion that she experienced reliving this experience under hypnosis. And she is under hypnosis and recounting the Reliving, not recounting. (laughs) Reliving. Okay. She's there. Listen. And here is where her story diverges significantly from the Hill narrative. After Betty Hill's examination, she talked with the leader and was shown a map of the alien's domain. Betty Andreasen, on the other hand, was actually taken to see distant worlds, and these worlds are pretty clearly a reflection of her religious beliefs. This is Betty Andreasen from an interview on the Transitions radio show in 1979. 
Well, after they had examined me, they took me back to the cubicle where they told me to change into my regular clothes. And from there, I was escorted into this room that appeared like a Quonset uh, hut-type room, half cylindrical. And within it were eight glass-like chairs. And they sat me down in the one of the chairs to the right, and uh, this hood, glass-like hood, came down. And I could hear it click around me, and then I felt very cold, as if I was freezing. They had her switch chairs and again sealed her up. They put tubes in her nose and another in her mouth and told her to keep her eyes closed. They gave me this reddish uh, color uh, liquid to take and it tasted very sweet. I felt very relaxed from it. And Meanwhile, this gray liquid fell down, you know, was falling on my head and it was filling up in the bottom of the chair. And when it was filled, uh, it vibrated like a whirlpool around about me. And, from there, they drained that out, took the breathing tubes out, and uh, set me on this track where one being was in front of me and one being was in back of me. Her captors put black hoods over their heads and led her to a very dark tunnel. I was taken through this tunnel, and we came. We were coming up to a mirror, and I thought we were going to crash right through the mirror, and instead we passed just like we passed through the wood in my home. And we came into this red atmosphere. First, she's brought to a desolate red place with weird creatures, hell. And in this red atmosphere, there was no vegetation. There were just large buildings with square windows, and there were these strange uh, creature-like beings having like two stalks for a head with very large eyes on the end of them. They were crawling all over the walls and in and out of the windows and all over the place. And uh, we passed through this area into a green atmosphere. And then the fantastically beautiful green area, heaven. It was beautiful. It was just fantastically beautiful. There were things there I can't even describe today. They, you know, nothing that I could relate to in this and planet Earth. And so um, I saw different things there, a dome city. A was this, their, this was obviously their planet then? No, this was not their planet. They told me that this was the high place. Betty Andreessen has taken the Hill story and made it more spectacular. The religious imagery continued as the story went on. And I came up to some uh, crystals that were just hanging in midair, and I did become fearful. I wanted to go back at that point because it was awesome. And they just wouldn't go along with my request, and we kept on going until we came to this area where this large bird stood. And the beings just got off the track, and I was left there alone where this huge bird was, and it was alive, and there was light in back of it just radiating, kept on radiating, and I kept getting hotter and hotter and hotter, and these sparks of gold were flying around in front of me, and I felt like I was being consumed by fire. And at that point, I must have passed out or something happened, because the next time I looked, the bird was gone, and there was a pile of ashes there, and uh, out of these pile of ashes, a large gray worm appeared. And then from the side, a, a voice spoke to me, a very loud voice, and called my name twice and said, you have seen and you have heard, do you understand? And I said, I, I don't know, I don't understand, I don't even know why I was there. And then the voice talked with me and reassured me that everything was all right, uh, that some of the pain that I experienced was because of my fear. And I just felt better, I felt elated, uh, and joy filled me. I, I felt very happy at that particular point. In the Andreasen affair, Betty goes into a great deal of detail about her interactions with Quasga and Juhop, 
who served as friendly guides on her uncanny journey. They also advanced the religious tone of Betty's story. The aliens behave in a way that reflects the belief systems of the abductee. Betty Andreessen was a very devout Christian. Krasgaard and Juhop are constantly saying little passages, epigrams and stuff that sound profound and, and, and spiritual. They don't make much sense when you analyze them, but they're an extension of Betty's beliefs. Betty reports Juhop saying things like, Because man has separated himself, he has become dual. Separation, duality, in love there is no separation. Quasga also talks cryptically. Many riddles will be given. Those that are wise will understand. Those that seek will find. They must be hidden in this way because of the corruption. The corruption that is upon the earth. If they are revealed outright, man would use it. Fowler eventually wrote three books about Betty Andreessen and her previous and subsequent dealings with aliens. But this is the crux of the initial story. In addition to the religious themes, Terry Matheson also found that her descriptions of the imagery from her journey were often influenced by popular culture. In fact, a lot of Betty's uh, events in her account, together with the pictures that she drew, of her experiences are taken right from science fiction and fantasy movies from the 1950s. And I was able to trace most of them, if not all of them. I know there's one picture she drew of herself in a very sort of attractive party dress. And I thought, I've seen that before. And then I went downstairs and found an old movie of Cinderella. And remember when the fairy godmother zaps her magic wand and Cinderella puts on this beautiful dress and she whirls around. Well, Betty's picture of herself is almost identical. And there are other scenes, too. She talks about being in a flying saucer and then being put in some kind of pressure chambers. And that I found immediately from a very well-known science fiction movie from that period, from the 50s, called This Island Earth. The two of you are beginning a strange journey, a journey that no Earth people have ever undertaken before. Now, whether you consider me a devil or a saint is unimportant. What is important is that you're here on this spaceship. And also from another famous movie that I'm sure Betty may well have seen called Forbidden Planet. Now, this is uh, no offense, but you are a robot, aren't you? That is correct, sir. For your convenience, I am monitored to respond to the name Robbie. Betty Andreessen's story was the first step in what became a succession of ever more incredible abduction stories. Each next step had to top the previous tale. But, as with narratives of any sort, there comes a point where incredulity is strained and the genre falls apart under its own weight. How far did alien abduction stories go before they reached the breaking point? Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane, with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Betty Hill was portrayed by Gina Rakicki. 
Barney Hill was portrayed by Jason Williams. Special thanks to the Milne Special Collections and Archives at the University of New Hampshire, John Horrigan, WICH 1310 AM in Norwich, Connecticut, John White and David O'Leary, the executive producer of the History Channel's dramatic series, Project Blue Book. Learn more about the show over at GrimAndMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.